0: Welcome to The Litigation War Room, where you will hear great stories and great insights from some of the nation's most accomplished courtroom lawyers. Here is your host, litigation attorney, Maxwell Goss.
1: On this episode, I speak with Peter Mahler, a litigator and thought leader in the growing area of business divorce litigation. That is, cases involving breakups and disputes among co-owners of closely held companies and partnerships. Peter discusses a case he handled that has had a significant impact on LLC member litigation. Peter also offers insights on representing business owners and on the growth and evolution of business divorce law. Peter Mahler, welcome to the Litigation War Room. Thanks, Max. Thanks for having me on. Peter, we'll be talking today about a topic near and dear to me, uh, namely shareholder and partner litigation, sometimes known as business divorce. I look forward to talking with you about a couple of very interesting business divorce cases that you've handled and getting some of your insights on handling business divorce cases. But before we get into that, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and about your practice? Max, I've
2: been a lawyer for the better part of 40 years. The last 17, I've been a partner at a Long Island-based firm, uh, which is uh, one of the premier business law firms on Long Island called Farrell Fritz. But I've always, my career has been spent in New York City, which is sort of the center of, of you know, my practice. And um, it's a firm that caters to the middle, mostly to the middle market, to privately owned businesses, which is a good fit for, for a business divorce practice, of course.
1: Well, great. How long have you been doing business divorce law?
2: Well, you know, I first got exposed to it as a very young lawyer in the 80s, and then toward the late 80s, I got more immersed in it as a result of pairing up. I was a young associate. I was working with a partner who had several major business divorce cases that he brought in, and, you know, that's how I cut my teeth, you know, sort of went to school and just immersed myself in learning the law. And, you know, this took place over a number of years with a number of different cases. And there was very, there was really no one else out there who was writing, teaching. It was all kind of new. And um, so I was pretty much learning it on my own. And um, over time, just built up a lot of knowledge and eventually, you know, started writing about it. And the rest is history.
1: Backing up a little bit before we get too deep in the weeds, for the benefit of our listeners' What is business divorce?
2: Yeah, you know, a lot of when when I use that term to people who aren't familiar with it, they they immediately associate it with matrimonial divorce. And I have to explain to them. No, it, it is what it sounds like, business divorce. And you know, very simply, it's 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 the separation of, you know, business owners who don't want to be together anymore. It can be an amicable parting of the ways, or it can be a very nasty drawn-out, expensive, litigated parting of the ways. I mean, the classic business divorce case would be a minority owner suing to dissolve, you know, the corporation or the partnership or the LLC. Um, But there there are other types of disputes that fall under that general, you know, heading of business divorce. It could be a shareholder suing, uh, asserting derivative claims, alleging that the majority is... You know, paying themselves excessively, or self dealing, or things like that. So you know, it 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 covers a lot of territory. But generally speaking, it's fights between co owners of closely held businesses.
1: Right. And when I think of business divorce, I often think it's really an aptly named. I mean, it's just a colloquial name for really a collection of causes of action and a collection of of types of fact patterns that one sees. But it's aptly named for a couple of reasons. One, at least in my experience, and you can tell us if it's true in your experience, a lot of times there's a lot of personal rancor. Sometimes there it's brother versus sister, brother versus brother. Sometimes there's an actual matrimonial divorce that's related to it, often some personal rancor. And also often, but not always, there's a division of assets at the end. So there's more than one parallel to actual matrimonial divorce, it seems to me.
2: Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And and uh, it's funny you mentioned family because over the years, and I don't I don't have an explanation for this, but over the years, more and more and more of my practice is dealing with family-owned businesses. I'd say over fifty percent, and and those are really tough ones because, as you say, it, it can be father against son, sister against brother, and all those permutations. And there's a lot of emotion that can get in the way of, you know, resolving, you know, business issues.
1: And how does business divorce relate to uh, shareholder oppression? I, I don't know, does she, in Michigan, we have a very robust shareholder oppression statute and a pretty developed and evolving body of case law around shareholder oppression. I believe New York recognizes a cause of action for shareholder oppression.
2: Yeah, I think just about every state except Delaware uh, does that. And, and it, yeah, it, it is a very common issue because of the nature of, you know, these, you know, democratic, you know, business entities where majority rules unless your agreement says otherwise. And, you know, so the majority will do what the majority will do. And often it's to the disadvantage of the minority. And since these are not publicly held companies, You know, where does the minority owner go? They can't sell their shares. They're sort of locked in unless they have, again, something in their agreement that provides some sort of way for them to monetize, liquidate their interest. And so, yeah, those statutes were enacted mostly in, in the 70s or so across the country, to give broader protection to minority shareholders of closely held corporations and oppression, which typically is not even a defined term in the statute. They sort of leave it to the courts to figure out what oppression is. But um, that has become sort of the the work engine of litigation brought on behalf of minority owners.
1: Right. And often it's a vehicle for sidestepping or getting around doing a shareholder derivative action, at least in the context of a closely held company.
2: Yeah. I mean, the thing about, I think in most states, and I can't speak to Michigan, is that certainly in New York, if you do bring as a minority shareholder that oppression dissolution case, the majority has a statutory right to elect to buy you out. And so, you know, for for what's called fair value. So oftentimes the minority shareholder will want to sort of entice the majority to buy them out by bringing that dissolution case, hoping that the majority is going to elect to buy them out rather than go through a dissolution litigation.
1: And sometimes it works. In Michigan, that's not the case. That's interesting. Often getting a buyout at fair value is the end game for a minority interest holder in a corporation or an LLC in, in filing an oppression action. And it is one of the remedies prescribed under the, the, the statute, the relevant statutes in, in Michigan. But it sounds like New York law is structured a little bit differently in, in giving that right to those in control of the company.
2: Yes, and and, and New York is really out of step. Uh, New York hasn't really amended its statutes, updated them in all the years. Other states have, I think, taken a more enlightened approach, also giving the, the court the power to order a buyout. And it could go in either direction. It could be the minority buying out the majority or the other way around. New York hasn't quite caught up.
1: And just focusing a little more on your practice, what kind of clients do you typically represent? Or do you represent people on both sides, control, non-control?
2: Yeah, interestingly, it's not like in other types of litigation where you're, you know, if like employment litigation, you're either representing employees or management, and you know, right. rarely do you jump the aisle. It's not like that in business divorce at all. Um, I so I can represent and have represented many minority non-control owners I've represented many majority control owners and it really doesn't come back to bite you on the rear end in any way. As far as the types of clients, they just run the gamut max. I mean all sorts of uh, sales businesses, uh, you know operating companies, manufacturers, sales, service, really of all of all types, as well as professional, Uh, organizations, law practices, medical practices, dental practices. If there's any one typical or most common client, New York being a real estate town, it's real estate. Real estate holding companies, particularly that's where there's so, so many family owned real estate companies out there. You know, grandpa, great grandpa back in the 30s, 40s, 20s, built up a portfolio of real estate in Manhattan or other uh, elsewhere in the city. And it's now been passed down to the second, third, or even fourth generation. And as you get, you know, further into those, you know, generations, you know, whatever bonds there were that kept the family unit together back then, they're starting to fray. So there is an awful lot of um, business divorce, at least in New York, I suspect elsewhere, involving real estate holding
1: companies. Sure, that's interesting. But really, it can be any business. Anytime you've got two or more partners, or members, or shareholders, and they have a dispute and they want to go separate ways, they need somebody who really focuses on uh, on this area of law. Often, the uh, at least at least in my experience, the, the sort of there's some great business lawyers out there. Um, but but business divorce law, you know, navigating these disputes can be um, very treacherous waters and really require a high degree of specialized knowledge. Yeah. And that's, you know, I think
2: that's a relatively new phenomenon. I, I mean, when I started, I was not aware of anyone who called themselves a business divorce lawyer. And now you can find quite a number who do. So it, it sort of has developed into a recognition that
1: that it does require some specialized knowledge, which didn't used to be. Well, Peter, I want to talk to you today about a couple of interesting cases that you've handled dealing with business divorce in the context of an LLC or a limited liability company. I know LLCs can present some special questions and challenges, both because LLCs are a relatively recent innovation and also because LLCs are in some ways a different type of animal from a corporation.
2: Yeah. And, and I assume in Michigan, as in New York, and really across the whole country, LLCs have just taken over. You know, the rate at which new, you know, entities are being formed as LLCs far outpasses, you know, limited partnerships and and close, you know, corporations now. And, you know, that's a that's a complete transformation of my practice. When I started, there was no such thing as an LLC back in the in, in the early 80s or mid 80s. Now, the majority of my work involves LLCs and. um you know that's where the action is and and even though in most states llc laws have been on the books about what 30 30 to 35 years maybe it's still as you said relatively new and there's still a lot of open questions in New York I know there are and I'm sure in other states where the courts even though it's been 30 years they still haven't addressed a number of important issues so there's a lot of uncertainty that still attaches to litigating LLC disputes,
1: well, could you set the stage a little bit by by telling our listeners first, what's the difference between a corporation and an LLC? and then what difference does that make for business divorce?
2: Yeah, well, you know people are are most people are are familiar with your traditional corporation, right? You have shareholders, you have a board of directors. You have officers. You have you know usually one vote per share and um, the statutes that govern close corpor- well, corporations in general have a lot of what we call mandatory rules. I mean, to some extent, you can customize the rights and obligations of the shareholders through shareholders' agreements, but there are, certain, there are a lot of lines you can't cross, even in a shareholders' agreement, because the law says it has to be this way. LLCs came about, what, in the late 70s and into the 80s, mainly for tax reasons, but they're they're essentially a hybrid of partnership and cooperation. Mostly, though, their characteristics are more like partnerships, where you get to choose, you know, pick your partner, you get to customize the relationships that exist between the various members of the LLC. They're considered creatures of contract, and that contract we call the operating agreement or the LLC agreement. And the statutes that govern LLCs are mostly a series of what we call default rules. In other words, they apply unless in your agreement you say otherwise. And and there are only a handful of of mandatory rules. So the LLC gives owners much greater flexibility. There are probably some tax advantages as well vis-a-vis S corporations. Some of the restrictions on S corporations don't apply to LLCs. So these are the reasons that LLCs have really taken off as the choice of entity for anyone forming a new, closely held business.
1: Right. It basically gives business owners the flexibility and customizability of a partnership, but gives you the tax advantages and also the limited liability that you'd find in a, a, a corporation.
2: Absolutely. That's absolutely right.
1: What difference does that make for business divorce, Peter?
2: Well, I think it puts a real premium on understanding the relationship between the operating agreement, assuming the LLC has an operating agreement, and the default rules of of the statute. And sometimes it's not all that clear which is going to prevail. And one of the two cases I had in mind talking with you about is, is one of those great examples of that where you know, going into the case, it really, there was no precedent and it wasn't clear which was going to prevail, provision in the operating agreement or a default rule in the statute. And so, you know, that can be a real pitfall for lawyers who take on business divorce cases involving LLCs and and just don't know how to read uh, operating agreements. They're not familiar with operating agreements. They're not sure, you know, how to read them. And, um, you know don't pay enough careful attention to the relationship between those provisions and provisions in the in the LLC law that may or may not override them you know that's that's a you know interesting and potentially dangerous area for lawyers
1: Right. Absolutely, and um, certainly, a well-crafted operating agreement is important. And when you don't have a well-crafted operating agreement, or when you don't have an operating agreement at all, it seems like that's when some of those issues of the interplay between contract law and um, these default rules under the LLC statutes really, really come into play.
2: Yes. 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 And so, so I mentioned, uh, you know, a case that I think really exemplifies that. It was a. A uh, case that I handled some years ago involving, it was a uh, industrial property that had been, an old industrial property that had been converted into, the space was divided up and they would lease space to light manufacturers and for storage purposes. And it was a good operation. And my client was the 80% managing member of it. And he had one partner who was a 20% non-managing partner. They got along perfectly well for a lot of years. And then the relationship started to fray, uh, not worth going into the details, Max, but eventually the twenty percenter filed a couple of lawsuits against my client alleging, you know, pretty much standard garden variety, um, breach of fiduciary duty, uh, derivative claims, mismanagement, those kinds of things. And those cases were just limping along for a couple of years. And then out of the blue, the 20% member served a notice of withdrawal. Now, you gotta understand that under New York law, this LLC, which dated back to the mid-90s, was governed by a default rule that said, unless your operating agreement says otherwise, you have a right to withdraw. And upon withdrawal, the statute says, you have a right to be paid the fair value of your interest. So in the middle of this litigation, the 20% member gave a notice of withdrawal You know, nine months down the road and uh, expected to be successful, I think, in getting eventually bought out for fair value. What he didn't pay attention to or what his lawyer didn't pay enough attention to were provisions in the operating agreement in the nature of a right of first refusal And including a provision, a right of first refusal provision where you do not have a third party offer. It's just you want to leave. And these provisions said these, you know, if you want to leave, you have to offer your interest to the other uh, member and try and negotiate over a period of time. And if it doesn't result in a transaction, you go back to square one and it's sort of like a never ending loop. And when this fellow gave his withdrawal notice, he did—he had not complied with, he had not made any attempt to follow the instructions of the right of first refusal provision because, I, I guess, his lawyer didn't think he, that, that he needed to. Well, he then filed a lawsuit for a declaration that he had a right to withdraw and a right to the fair value of his interest upon withdrawal. As soon as his effective withdrawal date happened, we immediately filed a motion to dismiss. And without uh, going through the details of that, we won that suit in the lower court. The judge agreed with us that the right of first refusal provision trumped not the right of withdrawal. He had an absolute
1: right to withdraw. He just didn't have a right to be paid the fair value. Right, so he was essentially trying to take shelter into New York's default rule that says that a withdrawing member gets bought out at fair value, but because of this provision and the nature of a right of first refusal in the operating agreement, he wasn't able to do that, particularly since he didn't comply with the relevant provisions of the operating agreement.
2: Right, and, and you know, this was a first impression case. This, you know, there was really no prior case that dealt with the situation. And, you know, the, the outcomes, someone could, could certainly say, well, I don't understand. So you have a right of withdrawal, but you don't have a right to be paid for your shares when you withdraw. But that's what happened. His withdrawal was effective. As of the date of withdrawal, he was no longer a member. So not only did we get the fair value claim dismissed, We also got all of his derivative claims dismissed because he no longer was a member and no longer had standing to sue derivatively. So you know he was you know up the river without a paddle at that point.
1: So he couldn't seek an accounting. He couldn't get a buyout. All the remedies he had been seeking, he no longer had standing to pursue these. He opted out.
2: What's the he was S O (laughs) L.
1: Yep, that's a technical technical legal term. Yes.
2: Yes, and um, you know, eventually, because you know, I think down the road there was a buyout, not anything close to what this gentleman wanted, but just to you know really truly separate them. But again, that that was, as I say, a great example of the need for lawyers to pay ultimate attention to the relationship between the operating agreement and the the default rules of the LLC law, and and you know was a great victory for my client. And we had to take it up on appeal, by the way. It, it took years to, to get the courts to get us to the end of the, of the case. But um, in the end, it was certainly worthwhile for our client.
1: And Peter, this was the Jacobs case? Yes. Jacobs v. How do you say it? Cardalemi?
2: Yes, yes. And, and I've written about it on my blog as well, if anyone really wants to get a little more information
1: on it. Well, I actually pulled it up on, on Lexus, and it looks like it's a very heavily cited opinion.
2: Yeah, mostly it's cited for the... Proposition that once you're, you know, out of the company, for instance, by way of withdrawal, or you know, you, you you no longer have standing to sue derivatively. It's it's not unlike on the corporation side, where if you're no longer a shareholder, you can't continue to to litigate a derivative claim.
1: Now, um, turning to the is it Faro? Is that how you say it? The Faro case. Yeah,
2: there's a, there's another case. It's also an LLC, and also. It involves the issue of cash-out mergers of LLCs, and in the long run, it's really going to be a much more important case than the Jacobs case. No offense to Jacobs, because a cash-out merger, if it works, is a very effective tool for majority owners to be able to, I don't know how else to put it, get rid of a minority member involuntarily. You know, They can force them out through a cash-out merger, also known as a freeze-out merger, you know, they have to pay, the statute says they have to pay fair value for their interest. So in that sense, it's very different than the outcome in uh, in the Jacobs case. But, you know, there was a lot of uncertainty. There was no appellate authority when I got this into this case that dealt with this issue. And what was going on was that the minority members who were being cashed out were alleging that the merger was was tainted with some sort of fraud or breach of fiduciary duty, some bad faith. And the, in the lower courts, although most of them agreed that the language of the LLC statute did not provide that kind of an exception to the appraisal remedy, which the statute said is the sole remedy that you have as a cashed out member, There was one or two cases in which courts were incorporating, they were sort of jumping into business corporation land where the statute is different, where the statute does allow a cashed out minority shareholder to challenge the merger and seek rescission of the merger based on allegations of fraud or other illegality, breach of fiduciary duty, et cetera. So the law was less than clear in that regard. And, you know, this case came to me as the, the three members of this LLC that was ba- had a very good business going, buying used cell phones, refurbishing them and selling them, you know, e-commerce style. For a while, it was a very uh, large, successful business. And they then were positioning the company for a sale to a private equity firm, a major transaction and as they were getting closer and closer to the finish line of the pe deal one of the three members for whatever reasons i won't go into them decided he did not want it to happen and as they were within literally weeks if if not less of closing the deal around that one member in other words you know the two of them doing the deal with the pe they didn't need his signature he filed a lawsuit that just you know, blew up the P.E. deal because the private equity firm didn't want to get involved in this mess where this one dissident member was accusing one of the other two of having defrauded him, claiming he wasn't even a a bona fide member of the LLC. And so that was the end of the P.E. deal. And it was really the last and best chance to really sell the company to this date. But at the time, we figured that you know what—if we can get him out via a cash-out merger, maybe then we can resuscitate and keep the deal alive, and we'll deal with you know we'll deal with the aftermath. But you know, the the object was to get the deal done. It didn't happen, notwithstanding that we did the cash-out merger. And then what happened is that the minority member filed a new suit or amended his lawsuit to challenge the cash-out merger on grounds of fraud, breach of fiduciary duty, et cetera. And the judge, uh, unfortunately, in a ruling in this, we, this started in 2016, by the time we get to 2017, the judge ruled that yes, this minority member had the right to seek rescission based on these allegations of fraud. Absolutely contrary to our reading of the statute, but we were stuck with it and we took an appeal But it took two and a half years. This particular appellate court in Brooklyn was so backed up and has been for a long time. It it took us about two and a half years to get that appeal heard and decided. And, you know, when it was decided last January of this year, the court across the board ruled in our favor and said that, no, the statute gives this member an exclusive appraisal remedy. They're not allowed to bring in allegations of fraud in the style of what a minority shareholder of a corporation could do under the corporation law. So, you know, the lesson, one of the lessons there is, and this is for lawyers and judges alike, these are two different types of entities governed by two completely different sets of rules, different statutes. And you can't just borrow willy-nilly from one for the other. And that's what this judge in the lower court had done to us. And, you know, so this was a very important clarifying ruling by an appellate court, which really now does, you know, sort of give a a green light for majority owners of LLCs who run into problems with minority members and don't have any other way under their operating agreement to force out a minority member. You know, and by the same token, of course, you know, remember, I represent minority and majority here. You know, it puts a real premium on anyone looking to be a minority member of an LLC, at least in New York. They need to bargain for certain rights when they enter into the LLC, when they're signing an operating agreement. They, they should want to bargain for certain veto rights, if you will. You know, uh, you often see in operating agreements and shareholders agreements something called a major decisions provision that says, for these particular types of decisions, You need unanimity of the members or the shareholders. That would be something you would want to bargain for if you're a minority, you know, thinking about becoming a minority member of an LLC. If it's not there, if you don't have that veto right, then, you know, you're vulnerable to a cash-out merger. So I do think that in the wake of this decision, we're going to see a lot more of of these cash-out
1: mergers. Yeah, no doubt.
2: Now, the litigation, let me just add, uh, Max, Wait.
1: the litigation is still ongoing. Well, that was my next question, is what happened? Did it get remanded? Unlike
2: the Jacobs case, you know, once the, the appellate court ruled, that then opened the reopened the door, I should say, for my client to go ahead now and file an appraisal action, an appraisal proceeding to have a court determine what is the fair value of the interest of the member who was cashed out. So that litigation is really just getting going now, it, you know, it'll take some time, but eventually there'll be, if it doesn't settle, there'll be a valuation proceeding in court with experts and uh, ultimately a decision, what is the value of the interest that was cashed out?
1: Well, that's interesting. It's really interesting. I mean, so many implications. So clearly it's very important for New York LLCs and, and for lawyers practicing in New York. Are there any lessons from this case for those practicing in in other jurisdictions?
2: Well, it's it's a good question. The LLC laws, you know, have a lot of variety from state to state to state. That's changing somewhat because of the um adoption by many states. I think it's over 20 now of the revised uniform LLC Act that's been around for a while. And so, you know, that is going to bring some consistency across the country to how these things are dealt with. I don't really know offhand how the RULCA, as we call it, R-U-L-L-C-A, RULCA deals with cash out mergers and whether it does, like the New York statute, say that the appraisal remedy is the exclusive remedy. But again, I, I think the overriding lesson is the same, whatever state you're in, there's always going to be this relationship between the default rules of the governing LLC law and the operating agreement. That's not gonna change wherever you are. So, you know, whether it's a merger or any other transaction that goes off the rails, the point is the same. You must study the operating agreement and must understand how its provisions interact with the default rules of the LLC law. That's still the, 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 the overarching lesson of all these cases, really.
1: Right, and an LLC isn't just a mini corporation where a court or a litigant can just borrow freely from principles and doctrines that apply to corporate law.
2: Yeah, absolutely right. And and that was one of the first, one of the very first major appellate decisions in New York dealing with dissolution. Said exactly that because courts were borrowing the oppression standards from the business corporation side importing them into LLC dissolution even though the LLC dissolution statute says not a word about oppression.
1: Now Peter, are you is your practice entirely litigation or do you do do you also advise business owners and draft operating agreements and do transactional work? More and more I, I sort of
2: get called upon almost really as a consultant. There's no litigation going on, you know, the the, the owners are not yet throwing brick bats at each other. And they just want to know, you know, what their rights are, what can be done, you know, how can we uh, improve uh, the situation. And sometimes that does involve, you know, putting together a new agreement. So I can advise and and often do advise clients on on those types of inter-shareholder or inter-LLC member issues. When it comes time to actually doing the agreements, though, an operating agreement or a shareholders agreement... I'll bring in one of my corporate partners because that's that's their bread and butter. That's what they do. They do it on a daily basis and they do it better than I can do it. You know, when you do an operating agreement or a shareholder's agreement, Max, you know this, there are lots of issues that have nothing to do with the rights of minority versus majority. There are tax issues, for instance. You know, we, we you really need the expertise of a corporate and, and perhaps even a tax lawyer, you know, to do it right.
1: And yet those uh, attorneys drafting shareholder agreements and operating agreements need to be informed of these developments in the case law. I mean, it really makes a difference. Like the cases that you just just described make a huge difference. If you're Yeah, well,
2: that's why they have to read my blog. That's,
1: <laughs> that's right. That's right. They do. And your blog is excellent. Your blog has really positioned you, while well, that and your success in litigation has really positioned you as a, a leading authority in this area of law. That actually, I think, takes us to just a couple of questions I wanted to close with. Peter, what would you say every lawyer needs to understand about litigating a business divorce case?
2: Well, I look at it from a couple of different angles. Um, Just from a sort of lifestyle of the lawyer angle, you really have to have the right personality to do it. And there's no one personality, I should say. The clients that you're dealing with Particularly when you're dealing with the family-owned business, they are under such stress and in such distress. So you really have to be a hand holder, I call it. I mean, I, I sometimes I do call myself a professional hand holder because they're just constantly things, particularly if the adverse business owners are still working together. They're under the same roof. They may be on the opposite sides of the wall and they're suing each other. So in those situations there's there's bad stuff happening you know perhaps even on a daily basis if not weekly or monthly so you're constantly being bombarded as the lawyer with calls you do you know what joe did and 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 they want solutions and you know they want results quickly so you know it's it's a very active role you have to play it's not just you file a lawsuit and then you wait for the judge to do something. You're really dealing with it on a, you know, sometimes a daily basis. And you have to be prepared for that and want to have that kind of a practice. So that's sort of more on a a personal level. Um, And then again, on, on a, you know, more of a, you know, analytical professional level, you know, my view of it, and I guess I'm biased, is that you really have to be all in. You can't, and it's probably true of many areas of the law, Max. You can't just dabble. You know, you can call yourself a general litigator, but if you're going to take on a case like this, you can't just dabble in it. You really have to know it. You really have to study it. And I think that's, I think that's part of why I said before that there's a greater realization over the over the years that I've been doing this, that this really is a specialized area, and that you shouldn't. You know, if you're a, you know, a client, you may not know this, but you'd be much better served going to someone who has a, a good deal of experience litigating these types of cases, not just business disputes in general. But again, it's not nuclear science. You know, if you're a good lawyer, you can spend some time and, and master what you need to master to handle the case properly. But there are lots of opportunities to step in a pile of you know what if you don't know what you're doing. Not understanding, for instance, i've I've seen it happen many times. Lawyers take on a, a a case for a minority shareholder. They bring an oppression case, and they don't understand. and they haven't advised their client that when they file that case, the majority has the right to buy them out. That's a major problem and a major mistake if you haven't told your client about that. And you know you need to know the statute. You need, like I said, I, I, I know I'm repeating myself, but you just have to understand. The statutory law, the case law, and whatever the sort of, you know, constitutive documents of the enterprise are, the operating agreement, the shareholder agreement, the partnership agreement, you have to understand all of that in order to do your job.
1: You know, it's interesting. You said so much that's of interest, but I want to pick up on this one point about New York law and how the majority has the right to buy out a minority once the case is filed, an oppression case is filed. There's the inverse problem under Michigan law, and I think under some other jurisdictions too. Sometimes a client needs to be advised just because you filed a lawsuit doesn't mean that they have to buy you out. Because at least where I practice, often, not always, often, that's the end game is to to compel the majority to buy the minority member or shareholder out and to buy them out at fair value rather than whatever they're able to negotiate otherwise and there's a lot of expectations that often need to be managed that's a that's a remedy that you get at the end maybe if the court orders it and you don't have that as of right without a court order you know i've i've preached this forever
2: the vast majority of these business divorce cases are what I call, you know, tactical litigation. If it's a viable entity, if, if, it's a, if it's a business worth continuing, it's not a corpse because who wants to fight over a corpse? But if it's a viable business and you have two or more owners who simply can't get along anymore, then inevitably there's going to have to be, at the end of the day, a buyout or or maybe there are certain businesses you can split them up in some fashion but it's going to happen and it's either going to happen because people put aside their emotion and realize that litigation can be long, expensive, there's opportunity cost involved and get a deal done up front or 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 relatively, you know, soon or they can go through, you know, I've had litigations that go 8 years you know, and spend a lot of money, but eventually (laughs) they get to the same place that they could have gotten to on day one, if they had just sat down and figured out how to make a deal. And listen, I, as a practicing lawyer who has to make a living, I get my benefit from people who don't want to do it that way, but I'll still advise them that, you know, it's going to be a long haul and you really need to think about, you know, just making a deal.
1: Well, Peter, with that, um appreciate your insights. I appreciate the time you made for this interview. It's been really interesting and enlightening. Before we go, um, you're an active blogger, and I know you also host a podcast yourself. Um, where can listeners find you?
2: Well, uh, readers can find <laughs> me um, on uh, New York Business Divorce blog, nybusinessdivorce.com. It's, I've been, I started that blog uh, in 2007. And we have published a long-form article uh, every Monday for the last, uh, what is that now, 14 years? I've never missed a, never missed a Monday. And I, I actually have two now fellow bloggers with me. So uh, I'm not doing the writing all by myself. I, do, I still do most of it. And it's just a wealth of information. There's something like 700 articles on it by now. And for those who uh, prefer to listen to podcasts, and I hope uh, those listening to your podcast. We'll do the same with mine. It's called Business Divorce Roundtable, and I guess you can find it on iTunes and some other platforms. As you mentioned off camera or off mic, I should say, Max. I have to. I haven't done enough of my podcasting of late, but I'm hoping to get back into it. But I've done some really. Uh, I, I, I've interviewed some really interesting people, particularly a number of appraisers, and I think business appraisal is an underappreciated area of the business divorce practice. We haven't really mentioned or talked about it, but if you're going to be a business divorce lawyer, you also have to become a semi-master of of business appraisal.
1: Well, as long as you brought it up, can you just expand on that a a little further? What do you mean when you say you've got to become a master of business appraisal?
2: Well, you you know, a lawyer is not a business appraiser. I mean, business appraisal is a, a, a true discipline that involves a lot of training, a lot of study, a lot of experience and heavy doses of math. So it's not something that your typical, you know, litigator knows inside and out. But you need to know the language, you need to know the concepts, you need to know the methods. You need to be able to cross-examine expert appraisers and examine your own appraisers. And if you if you're not familiar with uh, you know, appraisal, not only the, the appraisal methodology, but the law that governs appraisals. And there's a lot of mostly in Delaware, is where you see most of that law being made. Because as I said, you know, there are many of these cases that end up in judicial appraisal proceedings, such as the cash out mergers that we talked about, any fair, any fair value, the oppression cases where there's an election to buy out the minority shareholder, that will result in an appraisal proceeding. I love appraisal, the appraisal aspects of I find it really interesting, and I love working with appraisers. It's, it's really interesting stuff.
1: Well, Peter, it has been a pleasure. Uh, I've really enjoyed talking with you. Thanks so much for sharing your insights on the Litigation War Room.
2: Max, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me on.
0: You have been listening to the Litigation War Room with litigation attorney Maxwell Goss. Maxwell Goss represents clients in intellectual property and business cases in Michigan and around the country, bringing forceful advocacy and creative solutions to every case he handles. For show notes and more episodes, please visit us at thelitigationwarroom.com. That's thelitigationwarroom.com. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to The Litigation War Room and please Rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. The Litigation War Room, including the podcast and all website content and social media on all platforms, is for informational and entertainment purposes only. This podcast does not provide legal advice and does not give rise to an attorney-client relationship under any circumstance. All views, opinions, and statements expressed by guests are those of the guests making them, and not those of the litigation war room.